celebrating Shakespeare's 450th birthday. But as he's yet to take his seat, it appears he's running late. Very late. Whatever outrageous fortune has stayed him in his tracks, whether he's waiting for a horse, a horse, or a number 73 bus, we must play on and hope and pray he makes it to the second half. We have six stories on the theme of slings and arrows, twists of fate, reversals of fortune, or quite simply, slings and arrows. Or Shakespeare. There is indeed no common thread, except that they're all bloody brilliant and read by six equally brilliant actors. We'll have three tales in the first half, followed by an interval and the infamous Live League book quiz. And then three more tales before we bid you Godspeed and good luck with those iambic pentameters. Shakespeare didn't have to deal with mobile phones. That's probably because he carried a sword. Or was it a sharpened goose quill? Be that as it may, he did leave some advice. Let there be no noise made, my gentle friends. Except in rapturous applause, of course. Right, shall we begin? Our first story of the evening will be At the Bottom of the Sea of Troubles by Lucy Ripchester and will be read by Miranda Harrison. Lucy lives in Edinburgh. She has an MA in Shakespearean Studies from Shakespeare's Globe and in 2013 received the Scottish Book Trust New Writers Award. Her first novel, The Hourglass Factory, will be published by Simon & Schuster in spring 2015. Miranda is an actor and voiceover artist. Recent theatre includes Romeo and Juliet. And new writing roles include In a Moment, Autumn Leaves, and three roles for experimental company, the Novo Guignol. Numerous rehearsed readings. Voiceover clients include BBC Children in the Need and Educational Audio Publishers. Miranda. The Bottom of the Sea of Troubles by Lucy Ribchester. When I think of him, it starts with his shoes. Italian leather, I can tell from the tongues. He must have been friends with a sailor to have acquired them, because I can also tell by the way he holds his legs that he is horseman rather than seafarer. He wears black stockings. His breeches are short, shorter than the fashion, but they suit him, as does the collar. Stiff, square, lovely white. And gaping as if he has ridden carelessly through some forest, which he may well have done for all I know. I always remember the mischief in his face as he stood staring through the window of an animal emporium at a long-necked, thick-lashed giraffe. Like it could just get on its back and spur it away. 
poet then. The way he looked at ships, at the section of the Thames that broadened, it was with a hunger I haven't seen in any sailor. Is it yours? I thought for a moment he meant the beast and was mocking me. But when he didn't laugh, I saw he was pointing at the shop. How I could have taken his money and run. And sometimes in my more bitter moments, I wish I had, then at least I'd have a shilling to show in return for the gifts I'd given him. When we are adrift in the nightless Arctic, I think of the chill on the first night when he made us sit at an outside table in the beer garden so he could watch the ships. Back then, I was a boy to him. He paid more attention to the skippers, asked them about light and coastlines and birds. My asses, one of them said, of the baby hawks we carried back from Arabia to sell to Falconers. He liked the word, little he said it over and over. I saw his currency then. When would I have time to love him? Not there in the docks, where the ships gave off a stink of whale skin and tar and men too long alone. Not in the liberties where we walked under the Ludgate, in the sorry gaze of pitch traitors' heads stuck on spikes. Devils watching. And then? I was at sea once more, in my slops, and my own Italian shoes I'd bartered for a basket of English wool. When he waved me goodbye after that first meeting, he said, How can you sail so uncertain into the night, into sea creatures, renegados, pirates? I tried to disguise a shiver as a shrug, and said, half looking over my shoulder at a boisterous group of men trying on masks, let me that hath the steerage of my course direct my sail. I looked up to God, just as one of the men slapped another on the shoulder and shouted, On, lusty gentlemen! The next time I saw my poet, I wasn't even off the bow of the ship. He seemed like a fixture there at Wapping Docks, staring as if he was cast in black iron. This way, I later learned, he soaked everything in. I wondered if he ever slept, or where his chambers were, or when he rehearsed the plays he spoke so shyly of. Time stands still when you snatch gusts of it in other countries. Their time, their different ways of walking, talking, smelling. The rest spent on a blank sea-grey page with nothing but the edge of the earth on all sides. So you wonder how it is that people move on back home. His ruff was flashier this time, square and bright as a pearl, the corners high, reaching into the ginger fleece of his beard. We sailors, of course, don't follow fashions. We change when it pleases us. Something in Spanish today, black lace, a gaudy pin, a crucifix to be worn near the heart. Or German trousers, looser, covering to the knees. Sailors don't follow fashion because we bring the fashion. Oh, he recognised me. I knew from his eyes. 
on posh. I said, it was true. My voice was filthy salty. I can counter that. Somehow, it was easier to talk this time. Shored up in a bandside tavern, drinking cheap sherry. Yeah? Of course I've been to Syracuse. And Venice? Yeah. Tell me what the merchants wear there. I described it all. I told her about Castle Elsinore, where we delivered a pair of peacocks that later, I heard tell, froze to death in the cold grounds. And were you ever in a storm? <laughs> oh yes, the roughest. My ship was shattered. We were picked up by a galleon who turned out to be benevolent plunderers. How did he know what of this I fabricated? And you plundered with them? They would approach a ship from behind the wind, I said. You won't appreciate how hard that is to do. He looked put out. Dame Fortune has an outrageous streak in her to turn flavour when it pleases. Well, he said, she's a woman, isn't she? I went on. They have no muskets, no cannons, but more skilled marksmen you never could imagine. They used whale gut slings and bone arrows they'd filed down. They'd aimed the skipper's heart, or the first mate. That way, no damage was done. We walked late, and the evenings blurred into one. He blindfolded me and spun me, and I only knew where he'd led me when I smelled the sawdust and heard wood creak. And it reminded me so much of being in the underbelly of a ship, sailing through worlds, drifting into somnambulance in green mists, and waking up somewhere the words and dreams were different. The theatre, I said. We're in the theatre. No, he corrected me. We're in the globe. As he unfastened the ribbon behind my head, his fingers were clumsy and nearly knocked my cap off. And later, I found he'd left a smear of ink hardening in my hair. We were in the tiring house. And as soon as I clapped eyes on those rows of silk and lace and floor-length French velvet costumes, I saw what it was possible to become. He reached into the rack and wrestled out a thick cochineal brocade dress, stiffened into a flat waistband at the stomach. Try this. He saw me hesitate. Come on, you'll fit. It's meant for a boy. Can I try the bishop's robe instead? How coy could I sound, instead of terrified? He reached across to my brow, pressed his palm flat, and smoothed it. There was curiosity in his eyes, and I felt for a moment like a pebble or trinket, like the Xerox he had looked at with mischief. I cannot imagine the fatigue here, he said, a flaw. A wrinkle. A swallow. All right, he said, the bishop's robe. He helped me into it, and his hands, his inky hands, lingered 
my collar, and I burned. Then there was a time we rescued a bear. There was a pit across the way from the globe. It was after a baiting, and the thing was half stuck through a gap in the fence, still chained, wheels on its nose and a broken scream. With sticks to guard us, we yanked till its belly dug through, and plop, it was ours. What in the name of God and the devil, he said, am I to do with a bear? He examined its face. Its eyes were remarkably human. Put it in one of your clothes. We tore along the bank of the river, from Suffolk to Lambeth, hair streaming. I had the chain in one hand, and the bear pursued us. <laughs> Six months at sea. When I returned this time, the salt and the sun had left their mark and I was both scrawny and dumb. He was there, staring. Every day, he said, he'd come. My hand was the first thing he touched. What do you smell of? I was ready not to hide any longer. Perfume, I said. Arabian perfume. When he met my eyes, it was with new understanding. I don't know whether the rooms you went to were his. There was another man there at first, sitting on the bed. They exchanged a few words until the man got up, selected a volume from the shelf, and closed the door behind him. I started with my shoes, slipped my feet free, then breeches, stockings, shirt, until I was in my shift, a vain, silken piece I always wore right next to my body to keep the scent close, to remind me every day that I am a woman. I took away my cap, the pins from my dense black curls. He said nothing, not even when I was bare-breasted in front of him. He had on a starched ruff that day, and I remember he struggled to take it off. The rest of his finery was easy in comparison, slid away like seal skin. He was paler than me, and the ginger in his beard threaded down his body, now gold, now dark. I couldn't describe him the way I wanted to, but he made me think of all the sweet things I had ever tasted, touched, or seen. An oyster freed from its shell, apricots in hazy coats, Hands and flesh, a tall elk standing in the snow. Afterwards, he took up my shift and slipped it on. It clung to his lean body in different places to those it clung to on mine. I wore his stockings and the iced lace ruff, and we lay moulded by the threads of each other's fabric. Bound. I went to his play, noted the reference to Elsinore, to slings and arrows, told him. He smiled, as if that was reward enough. It was only when we were casting off, and I was back in my slops and jacket, sea-ready, steeled for a voyage to the Arctic, 
that the skipper said, don't see much at will these days. I kept my smile tight, a locket locked in my heart. Still, I suppose his wife must want him some other time, back in Stratford. Suppose he sees less of her than some of the sailors do with their moles. Oh yes, and his three bonny children. Can't remember their names. My heart fell out of me then, pierced down into the dockside grit, and I never picked it back up. When I look down upon that blank grey page that rocks in opposition to the ship, I think how desperate and beautiful and how strange it would be to extinguish into nothingness, melt into it like the elusive flame inside an emerald. Slings and arrows. But better to be at the bottom of this sea than floating on the sea of troubles we toss ourselves into back on land. I stare until I make a mirror. I see both a young boy and a dark lady. And my rage is not for the lie, the terrible lie he told, or the truth he didn't mention, or the double love, but for the things he took from me, words, objects, stories, gave back nothing in return. Where am I in all the body of his work? I take off one shoe, then the other, Shoes that will forever link me to him in my mind. Unslip my silk shift from my shoulders and pull it off through my shirt. The threads that took his odour and his heat. I stuff it tight into one shoe, bind both together with sea rope. And in the tongue of the other, I leave a note. Love is such stuff as dreams are made on. I bind them and I throw them. And of course, I hope they will float on currents back to him. But instead, they eddy, only for a second, and sink, pull down, spiraling, until we are a speck of cloudy mist. read by Greg Page. Cherry is owner, editor and chief cheerleader at Arachne Press. She has two collections of short stories to her name and quite a few anthologies under her editorship, including three packed full of Liars Loop stories. So that's what you do with two redundancies in five years. Aged six, Greg Page was cast in a nativity play. Somebody put a tea towel on his head and he became someone else. He was hooked. Since then, he's been someone else more times than he cares to remember. He can be contacted through rosaryimanagement.com and has no idea what he's done with his keys. Great. <laughs> right.
Castle by Cherry Potts. White mountain, white sky, burdened with dirty grey clouds that speak of more snows to come. Deep snow, thick snow, cold, deadly. On the lower slopes of the mountain, a road lined with a stuttering collection of shivering onlookers in improvised, impoverished mourning. On the road, from the valley and the palace and the town, a funeral cortege, the matched black horses startling against the white, struggling to pull the hearse through the snow that falls faster now than any amount of sweeping can clear, ice under their hooves, deadly in the cloth muffling the clink of their metal shoes. The slow journey of the body of the late Landgraf from the funeral at the cathedral in the center of town out to the fantasy fortress folly on the slope of the mountain has taken two hours already. The widowed Graphene, wrapped in sables and riding a mare as white as the snow, is shuddering with cold and tension. Wind whips through the trees. The snow dances and chokes. There is another hour or more to go at the pace set by the man walking at the head of the procession. Alban von Zee, with a bared great sword held before him, walking in black armour. Full armour. Real armour. Although neither he nor his deceased liege lord realised that this was armour designed to be worn on horseback and at that on a horse bred to it. His heart pounds, out of time with the muffled drums, faster, less certain. He can no longer feel his feet. He forces them to move, one step, another, breaking the fresh snow, forging a route for the cortege to follow. The great Rhenish helm all but overwhelms a man more used to wigs and silk ribbons and dancing shoes. He no longer thinks of anything but the next step. He can barely see where he's going. Snow has impregnated the slits that serve for sight and air, melted in the heat of his trapped breath, then frozen hard. The inside of the helm is surreal, dark and noisy with his laboured breath. The padding that at first protected him from cold and the harsh edges of the ill-fitting armour is drenched in his sweat, which has now formed a crisp rime, icy and raw against his skin. Four hours ago, when he left his new wife, the widowed Graphene, with kisses and laughter and promises of how exactly they would consummate their marriage once the old man was buried, his heart had been light with hope. The old bastard was dead at last, and Sophia is to claim. A quiet ceremony, just the Archbishop, the new Landgraf, and a scandalised ambassador from England for witnesses. A small antechamber, a prie dieu, and a diptych to serve as an altar. Alban had pledged his heart to Sophia many years earlier, but Willem stood between them, and despite the urgency of their mutual passion, 
Sophia was loyal and honourable. Willem might father bastards all across his fiefdom, and he did, but his wife remained chaste. So Alban's heart had been light and his mind carefree as he went in search of the armour that Willem's medieval fantasies dictated. And perhaps had Willem died in summer, and if perhaps he'd been content to be buried in the cathedral, but it is winter. And the Landgraf's final resting place is the mausoleum in the grounds of the faux ruin he had built up on the lowest pass of the mountain that shelters his city, built to house his favourite mistress, mother to a brood of Willem's by-blows. Even while Alban and his man Jürgen had puzzled out the armour and how it was worn, they'd laughed together, like schoolboys, he now thinks, in a moment of coherence. But as each piece of metal was strapped on, his mood had darkened. The Landgraf was dead, after all. He had been a loyal servant to the old man, had been something of a favourite. Lancelot to his Arthur, as some court wit had put it, not fully understanding the look that passed over Willem's face as the words left his mouth, nor the subtle snubbing he received from Alban forever after. To Alban, struggling with greaves and gorget, laughter had seemed inappropriate suddenly, and the first misgivings settled with the weight of the breastplate. But he was 34, healthy, vigorous, in his prime. There could be no declining the unquestionable honour of leading the funeral cortege and keeping the final vigil. It was only two miles. He walked more than that regularly, even in snow. But the armour and the helm. And now, only two-thirds of the journey complete and the steepest section yet to come, it comes down to finishing, to taking the next step. The respectful citizens are long gone. There is no one to hear his gasping breaths. It is less than a mile, he mutters, less than a mile. Out from the trees and the wind howls. If it were not for the drums that occasionally mutter into his consciousness, he could imagine he is alone on the mountain with the snow encasing him. The brief winter daylight is already fading, the bilious yellow of choking sun giving way to muddy pewter dusk. The honour guard are lighting torches. His, sleep, his feet slip from under him. Alban's heart is like lead. Ice strikes to the bone. Breath is terror. Sophia pulls the edge of the cloak closer across her face. Her clothes are drenched and heavy with snow that cascades from the folds as she straightens them. The funeral music pounds in her ears, persistently out of tune in the cold. She can barely see Alban, stumbling now ahead of the coffin. She cannot bear it. She rides forward, a half-thought to stop this. As she comes level with Alban, she slows the horse to an awkward stop, shifting uncomfortably in the snow. Alban fumbles with, his, with the visor, but it will not open. He turns his blind face to gaze at her, his graphene, 
his wife. He can barely make her out, snow-coated and pale. He turns away without speaking and takes another agonizing step. The graphene looks around. Some of her ladies are visibly shaking. She waits, ashen-faced, for the Chancellor to join her. There is no question of turning back, not for her, not for Alba. Tell my ladies they may go. As for the musicians, I want only the drums. The honor guard must stay, but if you can find alternates, there will be more, more than time for them to be relieved once we reach the castle. And you, my lady? I will stay with my husband. Alban is barely aware of the commotion behind him, the faltering of the pipes and oboes and trumpets. Another step. He thinks about the tears he imagined freezing on Sophia's eyelashes, so different from the tears that had been in her eyes only that morning when he held her hand in his, the ring hot in his grasp, the glisten in her eyes, the dread that she, or perhaps the bishop, might even now reject him, scorn his offer of marriage. Sophia stares ahead, her eyes fixed on the distance between the faltering steps of her new husband and the barely visible light in the gateway of the fortress above. How many times has she looked up from the palace and seen lights up here and cursed Willem and his mistress? How many times has she, in a fit of temper, declared that he would be the death of her? A chasm of certainty opens in front of her that this ludicrous spectacle has malice at its heart. Willem intended this, to humiliate her and to torture Alban from beyond the grave. She closes her eyes and think, thinks about tipping the coffin into the snow, collecting Alban into her arms right there to share just one embrace. But there is her son, 17 and with all the vulnerable arrogance of innocence riding at her side. Now, only the Archbishop, the Graffine, the young Landgra Landgraf, the Honor Guard, Alban von Zee, and two drummers creep up the mountainside. Curving stone walls, snow-coated five inches deep, Icicles, lance-like on the gatehouse, the flickering oil lamps in the courtyard, and relief from the wretched wind. At last, echoes silently in every mind, although the drummers do not falter. They like the echo off the walls, after so long barely able to hear their own beat. There is no one to greet them, no one but the old Langraf's mistress. There is no one to take the graphene's sodden cloak, no one to offer warming mulled beer, no one to stable the horses, no one to help Alban von Zee out of the weight, dead weight of his armor. There's not a woman in all the city who's not in love with Alban von Zee. Even Lottie Kettler, dancer, singer, and mother of six of the dead Landgraf's 21 illegitimate children, even Lottie, is half in love with Albert von Zee. As he stumbles in the courtyard, her involuntary response is to step forward and help him up, but 
the archbishop, a man made hardy by a lifetime of abstinence, is off his horse and helping the knight back to his feet before the sword can fall from his grasp. The honour guard sweep the snow off the coffin, shake the frozen folds of the flag into order and shoulder their burden. The archbishop leads the way into the chapel where Willem II will lie in state for one more night before he's buried. Sophia follows, with Alban close behind her, surreptitiously supported by one of the drummers. Darkness. Then a candle's glow. Then another and another. Light blooms around the raised coffin. The archbishop flings off his outer cloak and shrugs his coat straight. In the confusion on the road, the boy with his mitre in a box has been sent home. The graffine, the young Landgraf, and Alban von Zee kneel bareheaded at the foot of the coffin. The honor guard and the drummers bend their heads. The archbishop raises his hand to pray. The archbishop grimaces and starts the briefest address he will ever give in his life. Heartfelt amens echo, and the graffine and the Landgraf get to their feet. They've all gone, at last. All save Von Zee, kneeling before the coffin, holding his sword upright, the hilt pressed to his forehead as though in deep devotional prayer. The chapel is icy, and Alban coughs, a deep, ugly, hacking cough that shakes him and rattles the armour. His hair is damp with sweat. There is a persistent nagging pain below his armpit like stitch, but worse, deeper and colder, and another dull ache in his lower back. He focuses on the draped coffin above him and shudders. He prays, silently, desperately. At some point in the long, long winter night, he falls, tries to take his weight on his hands, fails and crushes down to lie, winded and coughing, praying aloud now between retching and coughing, praying for morning and deliverance, tangling words and meaning until the darkness closes about him completely. Low morning light through the doorway. Brooding recesses bleed darkness. A draped coffin stands between four extinguished torches. A dull reflection of the light from black metal. A Rhenish helm tipped onto its back, visor askew. A sword abandoned. A man unstrung. A discarded marionette. Outrageous Fortune by Allah Anbari and be read by Alicia Mackenzie. Despite being a stroppy child inside, 
etc. Allah is old enough now to have a few white hairs, and also, perversely, has had the same number of jobs, degrees, and psychiatric admissions. Alicia trained at Identity Drama School and is an alumni at the National Youth Theatre and National Youth Music Theatre. Theatre includes Rapunzel, The White Witch of Rose Hall, Ring-a-ding-ding, and In a Pickle at the Royal Shakespeare Theatre. Outrageous Fortune by Ala Anvari. I hold my breath as best I can, but my heart is beating so hard I'm sure they'll hear it through my chest. My head's spinning, my skull feels like it's in an industrial press, and I feel like puking. The most exercise I've done in the last 10 years is 40 minutes jog on a treadmill twice a week after work. I wonder where my self-respect has gone. Sprinting through a muddy forest with a paintball gun in my hand is about as far from my idea of a perfect date as I can imagine. <laughs> but then, the boy is cute. The boy is cute in that chiseled, childlike, gayish, new kids on the block kind of way, with hair that's somehow both short and floppy. His physique, that magic blend of lithe and wide-shouldered. I was sure when I saw his picture that if he was not naturally smooth-backed and chested, he would be carefully waxed at great expense. In short, he was everything I wanted when I was 14 years old. On the other hand, he doesn't half talk shit. I could tell, without having to wait for it to happen, that after the game I would be subjected to him and his creepy, vaguely unpleasant smelling friends talking about the finer technical details of various cyclical firing, automatic reloading, magical murder toys that they would never, ever be entrusted to play with by any army whilst alternately trying to patronise me and eye up my breasts with about as much subtlety and pleasantness as the weekly 6am visit on the garbage truck. Steve is the worst. He looks like some bloated, pimple-ridden toad and spits flecks of froth when he gets excited. He tends to turn his head and look out of the corner of his eyes at me when he thinks he's making a sly, sexist witticism. He is overly enamoured of an intellect he simply does not possess. <coughs> he is the type that would shoot you in the face with a paintball even though it doesn't score. It's just dangerous and hurts like hell. He's also the type that would cheat. They would all laugh about me. My sex, my lack of interest in the obsessions of man-children. <laughs> they would laugh about the fact that every time before I've been killed at the begin beginning of the game. The boy will either pretend this isn't happening, or perhaps he's genuinely so thick he won't realize it's happening. Yes. <laughs> the boy's cousin Dan is a close second in terms of annoyingness. Although he thinks he has good intentions, he, he has that desperate desire to be down with a black man. 
that results in a creepy fawning and an insistence that I chat with him about the latest dancehall album he's bought from iTunes, no matter how many times I tell him I'm more interested than in Sisters of Mercy. <laughs> Meanwhile, I would be far, far away thinking about work. I lied about my career on the dating website. I called myself a paralegal and cut my pay by two thirds. I didn't want to be a sugar mummy or scare off those who'd feel threatened, which basically cuts out about 80% of men at my career level. It's like I always have my mother sighing in my mind. What we want to do with your child when I got bad grades? When you're gonna get a husband child? when another short-term relationship broke down. It seemed I was always hitting walls with no way through or over. I had to just pile through, but my body was too weak. I can hear shouting about a hundred yards away. There isn't much ground between me and the enemy flag, but according to my mental tally of people I've seen covered in yellow paint, there isn't much of my team left. I try to gather my body up closer behind the tree trunk and reload my magazine. So far, I've managed to survive. This in and of itself is an achievement. I could just give up here. But now, an idea comes to me. More of a coalescence of a warm feeling. Probably the high from the endorphins. I will try to win this game. Even if, this, if it is stacked against me. I will go out gloriously. I will at least touch that fucking yellow flag. <laughs> Where I am is in a bad situation. My mum used to always say, if you're hung in any devil's moat, you better take it out. I let myself have a small mental holiday. <laughs> Witty banter, sipping cosmos, flaunting an elegant pair of heels in that new bar in Bermondsey before making a break for the flag. A witty banter and cocktails are not the boy's forte. He's more of an enthusiastic, brain-damaged puppy <laughs> than the proud and elegant lion of Judah I was led to believe was somewhere out there. Unfortunately, so far in my life, the closest male felines I have come across are deranged, vicious, stray cats and one glacially undynamic bagpuss of a man. <laughs> I make a break, trying impossibly to run both fast and quiet. I hear shouting and duck low, and then the whistle of, paper, of a paper behind my head and the smack as it splatters yellow across a tree trunk. Fuck! I start to zigzag like in the movies to make it harder to get shot as the forest vomits paint at me. I head towards the tree, not sure if I should keep running or hide behind it, and instead smack right into it. This will later ripen into a nice big bruise. Careen off it, turning to let off a couple of wild shots, and run pell-mell into the next tree trunk on the other side of the clearing. <sighs> I feel like a pinball going from one bumper to another. Just like my love life. I graduated university with a first-class de degree, my first STD, <laughs> and my first broken heart of many. Eventually, I became numb as hard and shiny as a chrome ball. I reflected back what I was giving in relationships, and it was never pretty. 
After university, I sat at home applying uselessly for jobs and baking bread out of boredom for 10 months before I got a PA job. At least to begin with, I was making headway with my career. For the last five years, I've been more and more frantic with work but making no progress. It seems more than a coincidence to me that despite being top of my field, both firms I've been with have gone into partnering freezes just as I was up for promotion. I need to get fitter. I'm sweating like a fat man in a sauna. And it's getting into my eyes. I push up my goggles for a second to wipe it off with my sleeve. I hear jeering as the dogs come closer. I imagine I'm the last, or the last of two from my team left. I stumble around the tree and wait, letting off three shots at some dude scuttling past me. TV show, tactical style, covering the back of his torso and arms in red. He looks dazed, like a pensive cow chewing cud before <laughs> dropping his gun in defeat. It's the boy. <laughs> They're all on my tail now, with a flag ahead of me into the west, that girl guide ship finally paying off, as I break sharply northeast in a big circle and drop into the bunker from behind. Inside is Steve, facing the wrong way. <laughs> he spins around, and I shoot my last ball in his tubby belly. Ducking him back and down, him firing shots uselessly to the side as he falls. I grab the flag. He points his gun at me. You're cheating. You're dead. I shout. No one will believe you. He chuckles, the little fussy. I notice he only has one ball left. His reactions are as slow as his wit as I grab his hand and aim the gun towards my goggles. His jaw drops in disbelief as he carries out an act. His actions aren't quick enough to stop. Yellow, then black, then agony and ringing in my ears as I drop to my knees, my face covered in paint, still holding the flag. I hear the rest of the two teams and the marshals excitedly coming near. I stand up, peeling off my goggles, and grin at Steve. Headshots are illegal. But, but, but you cheated, he says with dismay. You grabbed my gun. No one will believe you. I wink and toss my gun to the floor. I hoist the flag aloft and carry it back to the lodge. <laughs> And that is the end of Act 1. During the intermission, you're encouraged to read the complete works of Shakespeare. <laughs> you never know. It might come in handy during the infamous Lively Quiz. Oh.